do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I do love data centers. I love data centers. I live in Brazil. I do. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I Welcome to the I Love Data Centers podcast. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I am truly humbled and honored that you've taken the time to spend some time with me today. Before we jump in, I'd like to let you know that this episode is brought to you by you. That's right, folks. This podcast exists because you want it to. And despite requests that come in for sponsorship, we have no paid advertising supporting this show. This approach gives me the opportunity to maintain an unbiased voice while conducting these interviews. I do have one request and ask of you, however. If indeed you do find these podcasts interesting and valuable, I would greatly appreciate it if you would do me the simple favor of recommending and sharing it through whatever medium you choose, offline or online. If you want to throw a hashtag, I love data centers, in any online shares you do, even better. Thank you once again, and I hope you enjoy listening to this next interview as much as I enjoyed recording it. Thank you, everybody, for joining. This is Sean Patrick Terrio, your host of the I Love Data Centers podcast. This episode, I have with me Eric Knight, the founder and CEO of Simple WAN, who is based out of Arizona. And Eric, I'd love for you, for those who are listening, just to give a real quick intro as to who you are and, and what you guys do. Absolutely. No. Hey, thank you for uh, having me today. So I, I really appreciate that. So uh, yeah, so my name is Eric Knight. And uh, you know, it, it, the funny question is, is, people ask me all the time what I do. And um, it, it changes over the years. Uh, you know, uh, my wife says I'm an inventor. But, uh, you know, so I, I like the startup life, uh, you know, always looking for that next great technology. And what we're at today is um, a company called Simple Wan, which is you know, SD-WAN, which I'm sure we'll talk about because it's such a hot thing. But, uh, you know, that's not why we created the company. We created the company because networking sucks. Um, you know, it, it's difficult. You have to be on site to really understand what's going on. And every technology business that I built beforehand always ran into a wall when it came into, we built these really cool technologies that ran over the network. And when the network failed, or something went wrong, or somebody did something, we, uh, you know, it, the product that we built to run on it didn't work, and it made our product look bad. And so, through all those uh, those other ventures that were, you know, fairly successful, um, when we started this one about five years ago, we're like, okay, we're going to fix that for everybody else that wants to create cool products that run on the network, and this is going to be that tool set and that piece to to really make those things shine. Awesome. The uh, the funny thing there is I, I come from the data center world, obviously, <laughs> with I love data centers. But as I've gotten to work more and more with those who are working with consumer and enterprise at the office uh, network solutions and carriers, it's, dawn, it's dawned on me over the last God, three, four years just how complicated uh, that environment is. Because I was used to connectivity in and out of data centers, right? So gig, 10 gig circuits. For the most part, providers know what's there. For the most part, they those services work because there's such um, large large capacity on those nodes that they kind of have to. 
but as you get down to the offices in communities and you get down to the residential area, um, and I just see all the deals that are getting done and on the cable side and UCAS side and even just on the, the basic network connectivity side, it's just mind-blowing to me how I would almost say the majority of times when people buy services, they are not deployed on time or delivered in the, in the form and function that they were sold. And it's just it's mind-boggling to me how these companies can still stay in business. It's it's funny, you know. I've spent plenty of time in data centers myself, and obviously, your your podcast is named "I Love Data Centers." And you know, we dream of the days of data centers and working in data centers because they're well thought out. You know, everything from the cooling system to you know the the bandwidth that comes in and server design. People really think them out, and you know, it, it's a joy. It's almost like a perfect lab. So when everybody you know like you know if it was a perfect world. And you did X, Y, and Z, this solution would work perfect. And so data center stuff does. Unfortunately, on the edge or on a customer network, it's like, ah, uh, we're in a hurry. Let's just throw something together and we'll deal with it later. And the problem is nobody ever comes back to deal with it later. And it turns into not only problems from a, you know, a user function standpoint, uh, it turns into security risks. I was at a store yesterday where I was standing there to ship out a package, and this is a big chain, for 40 minutes because you know they're convinced the internet's slow. Or and and you look, there's networking pieces littered all over the place, and you know they've got all of these issues. And I guarantee you, their IT people are unaware of how frustrated they are, or how frustrated I am as a customer. And it's just thrown together. And when the next thing rolls out. It gets thrown together, and it is really the wild, wild west. And you know, I, I wish sites and, and edges and and companies treated their systems like data centers. Well, we will get into the complexity that is uh, the the edge and is software defined networking. But before we go there, you know, you you hold a number of patents. You are a successful entrepreneur a few times over. I'd love to hear your journey and your story. Um, where and let me start with this: Where are you physically located today, like right now? So uh, we're located so physically in Phoenix, Arizona. Gotcha. And did you were you born and raised in Phoenix? No, I actually was originally from Colorado, but uh, ironically enough, um, telecom uh, divestiture of AT and T is what moved my family to to Phoenix. So as much as I'd love to get away from network and and you know, telecom and technology, it seems like uh, the fate was sealed a long time ago. Well, that's that's actually where I was going to lead to next. So with relatives, was it your dad, your mom, or both? They were both. Yeah, they were both uh, Ma Bell people. Wow. So were they bringing home that tech and introducing it to you at a young age and getting you fired up on on uh, STEM and, and whatnot? Or was that something that you gravitated to, gravitated to on your own? I think we had access to it more so than the average person had access to it. So, I mean, you know, when they're bringing home computer stuff and modem stuff, I mean, I remember bulletin boards and, you know, pre-internet type of things. Uh, I mean, the computer that sat there was, it didn't do anything. You know, of course, it didn't have video games. And so you had to learn how to make it do something, which was incredibly boring. But at the same time, I don't know how people do it today because you've got all this fascinating technology in the palm of your hands. Why would you ever sit down and learn how to program? Yeah, no joke. I I constantly tell young people that I meet who are interested in developing that it's okay and you should definitely aspire to learn how 
how to program and how it works and what's going on there. But if your end game is to be a developer, you've got a long road ahead of you because there are so many mega geeks uh, that just crank out code all day, every day, eat, sleep and breathe it and do it so damn fast and do it so well that unless you're the elite of the elite, it's just not not really going to be a long term career path. Yeah, I would have to agree with you. And the thing is, is most of the people that, especially the young people that I run into that, you know, like, I want to be a video game programmer, or I want to be, you know, so you talk about elite. So definitely, you know, development is cutthroat. But you talk about somebody who's out there developing video games or, you know, AI, or, you know, even dabbling in quantum computing, it is cutthroat. I mean, they are the the best of the best. I definitely would encourage people to to do it, but you know, set your sights on something comprehensible instead of, you know, hey, I'm going to be a video game developer. Yeah, it's it's almost like I'm going to be, you know, the fastest in the 100-yard dash in the Olympics. Yeah, it, it's that it's that serious, yeah. Yeah, I worked for a, a firm called Top Coder back in the day which ran developer competitions and they they cranked out production code for large large enterprises. And they ran the, the Google Code Jam event and a variety of other large competitions for firms. And what I learned through that experience, among many things, was just how, how elite uh, some of these coders were that could do the job of 100 people in a fraction of the time. And that's also where I kind of learned one of the fundamentals, which is I'd rather have one of those elites at $1,000 an hour get the project done in four or five hours than hire a legion of coders at $20 an hour who are going to take months to get the project done. Absolutely. Yeah. And then there's just so much you got to realize. And I think a lot of business owners don't realize how much code ends up in the trash can. Uh, and, you know, and, and when innovation happens and, and, you know, it becomes a liability when you have, you know, code that doesn't and, and move forward. And so it's got to be quick and it's got to be fast. And, you know, at the same time, there's definitely a balance. I mean, I guess there's a balance in everything. Yeah, and I, I totally took us off tangent here, but go, going back to growing up in the household <laughs> with uh, parents who, who were going through the AT&T uh, deconstruction, um, how, how did that shape you? Like, were you encouraged to kind of pull those, the, the computer apart and figure out how it worked? Or what got you super fired up and in, in, into uh, being an inventor and being a technologist? You know, it's funny, when I was a little kid, even before computers, um, at least in our house, I would take apart all of my toys. And to my parents' dismay, I would never be able to put them back together. So I think as I was growing up, uh, you know, it, it became uh, almost a chip on my shoulder to where I had to figure out how to not only take these things apart, but also be able to assemble them back together in a, in a better or a new fashion. I've always prided myself on being able to take something that was not meant to do a particular function and, you know, apply it to a different technology or a different industry and, and make it work there. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's where there's a lot of innovation in is just taking something that somebody's doing in a very simplistic fashion and then applying it to it as a, as a completely new way. I mean, obviously you need some innovation behind it, but, um, that's always been my passion is, is like, it's like, well, what if we took this and put this here, then, what, what would that do for, for this group? And, and that's always been it. So what, what's one of the earliest memories you have of, of doing that? Oh, wow. Um, I was making stuff when I was five or six. I, I, I was convinced that I had things that, that I had. And now looking back, probably not. But at that age, I was convinced I was making you know, things that nobody else had thought of. 
Is it like taking a, a GI Joe and like strapping them to, you know, whatever, uh, uh, a snow cone machine or something like that. Oh, I mean, oh stuff like so. A good, a good example is so you know remote control cars were pretty basic in the in the, the mid eighties and um, and whatnot. But we had them wired to Christmas lights and you know had the you know we're running them at night and you know had them all light up and we had different controls from the remotes like stuff that now it's like oh well of course the five dollar item has that. But back then, I mean, we're taking a couple hundred dollar piece of you know expensive toy. And in many people's eyes, breaking them, and we thought we were enhancing them. Yeah, that's awesome. I have a ten-year-old uh, daughter who is almost the, has all the best qualities and the worst qualities of my wife and I, and she is that similar type where she's constantly pulling things apart, trying to figure out how it works, running chemistry experiments in her bathroom, and just making a complete mess of things. But we, my wife and I have to constantly check ourselves and take deep breaths and realize that this is this is good. <laughs> she's experimenting. She's learning. At least she's curious uh, and try not to uh, get so pissed off about the fact that her, her <laughs> bathroom and everywhere she goes is just a complete disaster behind her. I would encourage it all day long, but I don't know how they're looking back. There's a lot of things that I did. I didn't know how I didn't blow up the house. I guess I got lucky. All right. So you're, you're growing up, you've got some technologists as parents, they're encouraging that behavior and you're going through the school. Um, what, you know, did you start companies pretty early on? Did you think school is going to be a waste of time and university and college and just go there to get a degree or what, what was that journey like for you? Yeah. So a high level, um, really, you know, school was never really good for me. Um, you know, it was, uh, I don't think I was bored, but I was obviously bored. And, I, you know, I would make things and, and do things and, you know, that other people just weren't doing. Um, but really, you know, what really kind of changed my path was uh, Cisco came out with a, you know, their network academy program. And by some dumb luck, um, we were one of two schools in the country to pilot the program. And I was the youngest person in that class to get in there at that time. And, uh, you know, it was... I, I guess I didn't fully understand all of the content at the time, but between the internships that they lined up and, um, you know, and, and the things that I did learn from a concept perspective, um, it just, it, it really changed my course and what I ended up doing. But I had businesses going back to 12 years old, you know, I, I would have pool cleaning businesses on service contracts and lawn care services on, on service contracts. And my friends and I would pay them and, you know, they made money and, you know, we'd, we'd get it knocked out, but, uh, reoccurring revenue and that whole focus, that was really early on. That's awesome. I think that's a, a common thread amongst, I would probably say the majority of entrepreneurs is that we've all run some kind of lawn, lawn care type of business. In our <laughs> um, yep. It's easy money. Yeah. Easy money. So the first job job that you got outside of the internships was, was what doing what, where? Well, so, you know, and, and like for my kids, I, I'm horrified for them now because getting a job at 16 is just impossible. But it was even tough back then. And so my first job was uh, flipping burgers for a whole two weeks. I started um, and uh, I got uh, I got an offer at a computer for a firm um, a day later. So I put in my two weeks notice at the at flipping burgers. And within two weeks, I was building computers at a local shop around the corner. And this is as the internet was emerging. And, uh, you know, so I learned a lot about a hardware very, very quickly by doing that job. That was probably the foundation that you used with the, the Cisco stuff as well, right? Yes. Oh, oh yeah. And, it, it, you know, it people don't realize when they look at computer stuff, how many 
um, pieces are involved and how many components are involved. Just from the hardware world, which I still use today, is completely different from the software world. I mean, it just... uh, they're different people. They're different ways of going about it. They're different ways of thinking. Um, I even think of like data center and, and you know all of these different worlds. Most people that are are you know developing software have never set foot in a data center. Um, I think you know the people that uh, that are were building computers with me had never opened up um, you know a code coding application to write any of the software to go on it. It's just it's completely foreign and, and siloed. And enter enter the world of DevOps, right? For those who can spend the time and take the time to understand both the development side of the house and the operations infrastructure side of the house. They are a rare, rare breed, but absolutely 100% valuable. So how, how did you start to pick up that knowledge um, of both the development and the, the infrastructure side? And I mean, obviously the network side, but it's all all related because to do the work that you've been doing and build what you've built, you kind of have to have that holistic understanding of the technology stack that can't just be from, you know, coming from one side of the spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, obviously I learned a lot about hardware back, you know, back doing that job. And when that, I worked there until that company went out of business and I was like, well, crap, what am I going to do now? And, you know, I was still still in high school and, you know, there's a couple career paths. You know, one of them was go work for a credit card company like everybody else was in high school um, or, you know, find something else. And at the time, CompUSA was still around and uh, they're like, hey, I've got a sales job for you. I'm like, a sales job? I don't want a sales job. I'm not going to do that the rest of my life. I'm, you know, I'm a tech guy. I'm a, I'm a guy that, uh, you know, that, that works in the back room and, and does his thing. And you know, I was like, you know what, though, somebody could walk in on that job, and you know, offer me a position that if I'm in the back room somewhere, I'm never going to meet. And that's what happened. And so, not only that, um, I picked up so much from that sales job. I, you know, I was a top salesperson. You know, in an, uh, in in day, what is it? Every every other month or something like that, I was like, I was their their top salesperson, moving more hardware and more warranty um, than anybody else they had on the floor, and I was doing it part time. And so that experience, I think, was probably more valuable than any tech training and tech experience I've ever had, because you can do that stuff in your free time. Um, but learning how to deal with people and, you know, and I never claimed to be a, a good salesperson, but being able to, you know, have that experience and, and deal with people and then also know what you're talking about on the backside, I think was probably the biggest and best thing that could have ever happened to me. Yeah, amen, hallelujah. You know, I hate to say it, but I can imagine a young 16-year-old Eric Knight working the floor of a Comp USA, <laughs> slinging hardware and uh, and uh, maintenance contracts. So what what got you into doing your own thing? I mean, eventually you got off to start your own business um, and run your own firm, I see, from 2002 to 2005, which was pretty, pretty early days. Um, and then there was an acquisition there. Walk me through that storyline. Yeah, so um, you know, it, I got picked up off off the floor, of course, at CompUSA, and got a, a great job with a startup that uh, that was an ISP. And I definitely recommend. I mean, another great experience is everybody needs to work for a startup, no matter where you're, what you're doing. I mean, that that being able to be, first of all, grow up and 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 move quickly within a startup is is huge. But you learn every every job in there. You you become an expert at almost everything. And uh, after doing that for a number of years, I was just, you know, com- 
was just displaced. I was unhappy. They, they weren't doing things the way that I wanted to. And like every young person, I thought I could do it better. And so I started an, an IT shop. And, uh, you know, at early MSP, we, we had the idea of, hey, let's, let's just bill a flat rate per server and per workstation. And, hey, if we could do this stuff remotely, it'd be even better. And, uh, you know, that kind of ties into the, the main story, which is the dream was there. We had a lot of you know accounts that were a couple hundred miles away, but the internet and the network technology that existed at the time period, we still had to hop in a car and go do those things. And then while we were getting that business off the ground, um, you know, I was like, hey, phone systems—they look like computers. I can do that too. And I sold a couple of customers um, uh, Toshiba phone systems. And found out I was not, uh, I could not get the licenses, nor did I have the expertise to uh, to get that off the ground. So I, I called in um, a couple other companies to kind of help me through that, and we ended up merging with one of those companies, like a twenty-some-year-old company. And within a few years, we bundled them both together and sold them to actually start a voice over IP company. That's a great story. The uh, the innovation there and the partnership, you know, being able to find those partners, like all, all of that piece, you know, to your point about working for a startup and how everyone should have that experience. That's, that's one of the key lessons I've learned in my life is understanding that I'm never going to be an expert in everything and being able to find those who are and be able to find ways to integrate and work and partner with those people to make one plus one equal a hundred is such an invaluable lesson for anyone in business. And I think people have to understand that, you know, startups, the odds are against them, right? I mean, like any other business, 50% of them or more, especially in the startup world, just don't make it. And the pay is atrocious and the benefits are horrible. But if you're young enough to where that kind of stuff you can get by, the experience that you will pull out of a business like that is, is something you can never get from money or benefits and a lot of people today, they get out of high school, they get out of college, and they're like, oh, this big firm is giving me a six-figure income to go do their IT work. But you will never gain the experience and, and the, the tools that are really going to catapult your life forward into, you know, who knows, a multi-million dollar, you know, venture down the line because you, you gain that experience doing a startup. And so I stress to everybody with the STEM stuff, with, you know, the, the stuff that I'm involved in with the, the foundations and stuff like that, it's... Uh, you take that risk if you can do that that thing with a startup because you just you just cannot tell if I didn't do that early on I don't know that I would have felt comfortable doing it over and over again and even back then the whole startup thing was not glorious it was like oh hey congratulations you're you're going to start a business good for you I mean in my parents for the first almost eight years, they're like, well, when are you going to go get a real job? You know, when are you going to go get a corporate job? When are you going to go do that? And they didn't understand it. And so I think everybody around you is like, hey, go get a real job. But I can't stress enough, whether you're starting one or you're just in one, do a startup. Yeah. Especially if you, if you don't have, uh, or if, as you said, you have the liberty uh, to be able to do uh, a job like that. It's it's funny how many people come into college thinking that they need to get a job with a big high profile company to put on their resume so that they can then move on to other opportunities where, you know, I, I'm sure you will attest for me, I'd rather see someone who is in uh, a fast paced growing scaling company that's had to have multiple different roles within that organization and adapt quickly 
um, and learn quickly than someone who's just been instantly thrown into a massive behemoth of an organization and said, here's your box, here's your role, know your role, do this day in, day out, and just do this extremely well. You know, don't ask questions, um, you know, and we'll, you know, we'll pay you well and you'll have this on your resume. Uh, it'll be a great launching pad for you. I think the best launching pad is for someone to step into the completely different environment where they don't know what the hell it is that they're doing and they've got to figure it out on their own. Just like you're willing to take a risk on the entrepreneur in the startup, they're taking a risk on you. And at the end of the day, I've seen people grow um, just to, to levels that they never thought that they could grow to by by taking that job, whether whatever, whatever reason they took it in that moment. But I, you know, it excites me when I see some on paper when somebody's been at a startup and you know the changing roles within that organization and, and growing. It, it says okay. They're willing to adapt. They're willing to be dynamic. And these big IBM type companies, I mean, obviously they can't get out of their own way most of the time. They can't innovate. And so seeing, I guess the description would be an innovator on paper. Um, you know, not only do you know that, hey, they're going to be able to do what's needed, but, you know, they may be smarter than you and they may be able to, you know, overtake where you're at. And that's what you need within your organization as a, at a startup level. And so what are some of the, I mean, I hate to go, I'll eventually get to the, uh, the SD-WAN piece because I definitely want to drop some knowledge on both myself <laughs> and the listeners. Um, but what are some lessons you've learned as a founder and a entrepreneur as it relates to um, hiring people and, and what you look for in those individuals? I mean, the thing that you've got to know in, in a startup and in technology is you're probably in a fringe area, um, like you know we've been a number of times, and that means that it's a lot of training, not just on technology, but procedures or lack of procedures, and being able to get somebody up to speed and what we call tribal knowledge. And so when you look at somebody and you're looking at their resume and you're looking at their stuff, and if, if they're jumping jobs every couple of months or even every couple of years, you're like, oh, man, I'm going to have to put a lot of work into these people. And they're going to have to eat, sweat, and bleed everything that we're, we're teaching them. And if they're just going to be like, oh, this is too hard, or oh, I've got something better, um, because you know they're fully not committed in, in you know, their, their history, then you, just, you can't bet on them. You just can't, and because the, you know the chances are that they're they're not going to be there when you need it most. Because there are days, I'm sure you've seen the meme where you know it says entrepreneur, and there's where one day it's like everything's great, everything's amazing, I'm going to be a billionaire, and then the next has a a little uh, drop down. It says I'm going to kill myself, you know, and then the next one says oh we're making some money, and the next one's like oh everything crashed, you know, something like that. And that is that is the the lifeblood of technology entrepreneurship. And so you need people that are going to be willing to stick with you through that. Are there specific questions that you ask people when hiring that kind of gets to that core ethos? I try really hard to make sure that we're not interviewing people that I'm pretty sure by looking at their paper um, are, aren't a fit. If they get to the interview stage, there's a pretty good chance we've already made the mental note that they're going to get hired. Um, but they can definitely screw that up in the interview. But um, you know, it, it's really a lot about their their fundamentals and where they're going. And somebody who comes in is like, oh yeah, no, I, I'm just looking for some experience, and it's just not exciting. But if it's, hey, 
I see you guys do this. I'm not very good at that right now, or in fact, I have no experience doing that, but I'd like to one day. And it's like, okay, well, you know what? We have the power to help you get there, and uh, but we need this position filled right now. Uh, it, it's a good fit for everybody because they can absorb the people that have lots of experience on where they're going, and yet they can still fill a role that we need today. Gotcha. All right, so let's get back to the back to the Eric Knight storyline here. You're working for a voiceover IP company, which I think goes back to one of your initial statements about how you can build the best technology in the world. But if, if you're dependent on the network and the network isn't operating the way that you need it to or want it to, you can screw up the service and then the service looks bad. I take it, and I'm assuming that's one of the major lessons that you learned when you were at uh, Convoys. It, it was one of our first deals. And, uh, you know, we we were we we knew enough people in the community and and we had a lot of accounts. I mean, when we started that company, uh, it was one of those things. Before we had the technology, or even the data center contract or the circuits contract, we had sold five clients, and so we had taken their money and told them that we were going to deliver a phone system in four weeks. Um, and so at that point, we knew there was a market, and now we had to make it work. And so everything was questionable at that point whether or not it could work. And this was before any of this voice over IP stuff existed or you know, services to help it out. So there's a picture actually that just popped up a few, uh, few days ago that showed a, a room full of beer cans and beer bottles and you know, my original team and things that looked like they were from the 1980s for servers. And I mean, it was just, it was, it was atrocious, but we got it to work and uh, got the data center stuff, which none of us knew what we were doing in a data center. We'd never been in a data center before. And then got that all in, got that all working, and it looked awful. Like they would never let what we did in a data center today. Um, and then we started installing the sites. And some of them went okay. And others were just awful. And the call quality was awful. And obviously we didn't understand why. And we had no tools to figure out what was going on. And even the local internet providers had no tools to understand what was going on. So they would have five trucks at a site with us, and we'd be sitting out there and be like, look, the call quality is awful. And they'd be like, ah, I don't know what to tell you. Look, the pings look good. And, and we'd just tell them it's awful. And they'd be like, I'm sorry, I don't know what to tell you. The pings look good. And the things that we didn't know at that time period and the tools that they lacked, um, we ended up losing that customer because it was us blaming the ISP and the ISP blaming, you know, blaming us and everybody at the end of the day is just like, it's not going to work. And so we walked away from that one and that's when we realized it's like, oh, we have to start developing tools and something so we can see what is going on here and being able to, you know, to onboard a voice over IP customer in 2005, it was a lot of work. Not only did you have to sell them on concept because nobody had heard of this stuff before, you had to then train them and get them on the technology and, and do all of these things. So to lose a customer after the fact, it was just it was just a nightmare. So that's when we really started to think, okay, we've got to come up with a tool set because our last business was about rolling trucks and that doesn't work anymore. It's just too expensive. It is, I, I always think of them as rolling death, death trucks, you know, just waiting for somebody to get in an accident. And they did every six months. And here we are with this voice over IP company and we're, we're buying a fleet of cars again. So we had to we had to do something, and so that was a slow slow climb up to where SD WAN really is. All right, so 
SD WAN, so so very hot right now. I just always go back to that Zoolander. Uh, if you've ever seen Zoolander, uh, oh yeah, scene where they've got that that phrase is around the the catwalk runway with Hansel. Uh, but SD WAN is the new hotness, and in from my perspective, you know, I, I'm not a super geek when it comes to network. I've learned what what I need to to understand how it all plays and works, but. And I could log into a router and a switch if you wanted me to. I'd probably mess it up and you probably wouldn't want me to. Um, <laughs> and I, I understand the basics. But for those who are listening, who, who are trying to unwrap what SD-WAN is, uh, what the hell is SD-WAN? And um, the, the precursor to that is I, I almost feel like it's, it's similar to cloud and that it's both everything and nothing at the same time. So what, how, when you're explaining it to customers and or you know, your mom, um, how would you explain what SD-WAN is to someone? So I think you already hit it on the head, which is it's, it's everything and it's, it's nothing all in the same. Um, SD-WAN really is a branding term, but the core behind it um, and what people I think really need to understand is when the internet was built, it was kind of built like a local network where it was like, hey, um, let's come up with some of these protocols and these applications and we'll run them locally at our office and everything should be good. And, uh, you know, there, there's weak protocols and there's weak applications that, that work really well at your office. They work really well when things are close and, you know, you can see the other side. And what happened was as the internet got built out, they're like, oh, well, let's just shunt this over the internet and, uh, you know, it'll be great. That way we don't have to replicate this stuff. And what the real push for this is cloud. So when you used to have a server in your office and you connected locally to it, no big deal. You really didn't care what the protocol was. You didn't care what the application was. It was just there and it worked as long as the power light was on. Fast forward to a few years ago and people are starting to move these things into the cloud, especially voice over IP. Voice over IP is a horrible, specifically SIP, is a horrible, horrible protocol. It was designed to sit on a local area network of a business. And, you know, kind of to our push and everybody else's is we'd like, oh, let's host this stuff. Let's put this in a data center. And the protocols and the technology behind it that worked really well on a local office started to break down um, over long distances. And then you add in the factors of, oh, well, there's a network break here. There's a, you know, there's a storm here. And then these applications and these items stopped working very well. So just to give you an example is to call across the street between um, your house and the house across your street. Your phone call is probably routed across the U.S. three or four times. It doesn't just go and connect across the street. You're on a different provider. Their, you know, their peering agreements are different places. Their fiber agreements are different places. Their data center, you know, their all of their stuff is all over the place. And so just to make a simple phone call that would used to go right across the street, it wouldn't leave your city, now goes all across the U.S. And you think of other time-sensitive applications like um, EMRs for doctor's offices where they're inputting data in real time and things like that. And now they're across the U.S. or they're across the, you know, wherever it may be. And that started adding up to problems. And that's kind of where the birth of SD-WAN has come out of. So you, you still haven't answered the question, what is SD-WAN, Eric? So we say the core, and, and yeah, we get asked, asked this all the time, the core of SD-WAN 
And it's not all this other stuff that you know we, we truly believe it is becoming. The core of SD-WAN is to make your network feel better. It's to make sure that that stuff that you're moving out of your office into the cloud or into a data center feels just like it did when it was in your office. And that means failover. That means load balancing. That means making sure that it's picking the best path, the shortest path, connecting offices together like they used to be physically connected. All of those things are core SD-WAN. So breaking it down just by the, the verbiage, right? Software-defined wide area network. You're adding software to those um, switches and routers that are controlling network traffic for companies. And what, what are some of those capabilities that you that never used to be in the hands of customers that are now completely in the hands of customers? See, then the white, what, what this is doing and why it's important is because we joke, everything's software defined, right? The original router from you know, 1988 was software defined. It ran software. The difference in this technology between you know, that and your standalone firewalls or your standalone routers is we're letting the system make choices. So it's smart enough to know that, oh, this link went down. We better shut this traffic this way. Or, hey, there's a storm along a backbone somewhere and the latency has jumped up. We need to push those packets that way. And then, oh, by the way, this application is not performing very well. Let's try a different path and push it this way. And before, everything was static, which means you set it up and everything flowed one way. And when there was a problem, there was a problem. And it took a person to fix that problem. Today, SD-WAN kind of eliminates that need and can make those changes quickly and intelligently. And I, the, the other interesting and what I find to be very cool thing for SD-WAN is the, the control that the user now has that they did not have and the visibility that they did not have prior, right? So to your point, it was in the carrier's hands, they had the visibility. And if they said, hey, things look fine on our end, you were just kind of like, well, there's nothing I can do about it. Um, but now you actually do have some control and visibility into what's going on within your network so that you can adjust and, and modify, not just through any kind of built-in um, rules that have been assigned to your network, but you, you can actually build, you can assign those rules. You can tweak those rules, right? Yeah, and it puts it in the, the user's or the local IT person's hands, as, and it's much more granular. And you're right. And I actually don't believe that a lot of the carriers could... Um, see into what was going on and those kind of problems. But this whole SD-WAN push has definitely done that and it's made it into a visual product. So our whole focus, and I know a lot of other SD-WANs is as well, is you should be able to sit down with a C-level at a company and show them these graphs and these pictures and they understand, hey, green is good and red is bad and make decisions you know, at a high level. Okay, we need to change out this internet provider at 500 locations because of X, Y, and Z, instead of just four people sitting in a room saying, hey, trust me. So what, what is SD-WAN? Is it replacing anything or is it adding functionality on top of existing? I think the original idea was that it would add onto existing. It'd be another box. But what we found and what we're seeing from a market trend is people don't want to add another box. They want less boxes. And so the focus of SD-WAN really now is SD-Edge, or they call it SD-Branch. It's evolving into that, where it's collapsing stacks, which means it's like, well, wait a minute. 
it's sitting right next to a firewall. Shouldn't it do the firewall too? Why do we need another box? And shouldn't it do content filtering? Shouldn't it do all these other pieces since it's already there? And so while I think the original plan was, hey, it's going to be another box that just augments this technology, it's now really focused on, hey, let's utilize cloud functions. Let's utilize, um, they call it NFV, so network or NVF, network uh, virtualization functions. That's all evolving into, hey, we don't want a bunch of hardware. This hardware is going to be augmented by all this software, and we're going to collapse all the boxes. And security, then obviously, as you're dealing with network, has a lot to do with the functionality and the role of the uh, system and the device. How how does that? Is for some it may seem obvious, but you know, for for the lay layman and even myself, like how does one go about architecting such a solution? with security in mind and making sure that it's front and foremost. And I guess the other piece to that is on the security side, what it, as I, I'm talking to more and more security vendors and providers, what I'm realizing is that there are lots of tools out there. So it's security companies that really have widgets and tools on the security side, but there's very few that deliver a true end-to-end -end solution. So I guess within the S, the question is within the SD WAN uh, solution set. I guess as it specifically relates to relates to Simple WAN, how is security being baked into your solution, um, and is it to what degree are you handing something over to a customer? Uh, it, it, what functionality and and resources do they need to add to that in order to have a fully protected uh, network? So I think that's a trick question. Is that a trick question? <laughs> um, the reason why I ask that is um, the edge is the edge. It's always been the edge, whether it's it's a firewall, whether it's new SD-WAN appliances, whether it's the internet company doing something on the edge. Um, I, I say security in a network or a business environment is a lot like home security. And so there are so many different levels and it just depends on you know how far you want to take it, but also what what is you know what makes the most financial sense. So your edge security, so like your traditional firewalls or or some of the things that SD WAN is providing is like is like you know locking the door. And so most people lock the door, and you know that's that's as far as they take it. They say, hey, I live in a safe safe town. I'm good with locking the door, and we're going to leave it there. Uh, but there's different levels to it because what if you leave the window open and somebody comes in through the window, that would be like your software protections, your antiviruses, your, your malwares, your, um, your, um, uh, it, your ransomwares, which is really big right now. You can have the most secure firewall in the world, but if you're not taking a multi-point you know, attack or protection method, it doesn't matter. You can you can put an armed guard at the front door, and if you leave the window open on the side of the house, they're going to come in the side of the house. Um, so everything from a security approach is policy, edge, application. Um, those three are are just a really you know, and, and sometimes mobile if you want to take it that far. But those three are really um, the core of what make up a business security today. And a lot of people think, oh, well, I just have a, 
you know, I, I have a, a firewall I bought five years ago. I, I got news for you. The 90 days after you bought it, it's bad. That's old technology. It doesn't update itself. It doesn't stay current. It's so easy to get past. You've then got, um, you know, your antiviruses and, and things like that. But I, I would say at any given point, a business should be evaluating those three points. And social engineering is policy. We see more social engineering. And uh, if you have time, look at some of the videos of, uh, uh, what is it, uh, conference on, on uh, YouTube, where they'll call into these big companies and they'll take over people's cell phones. They'll take over people's email accounts. They'll take people over people's power bills and shut the power off all by talking to somebody on the phone and convincing them they are who they say they are and, you know, making those kind of changes. So those three core pieces and SD-WAN is only going to solve one, maybe one and a half of it, which is opening up the packets and, and looking at that kind of stuff. But if you don't have good policy and good endpoint security and antivirus, things like that, uh, you, you know, you're just, you're just taking a one prong approach. And to that end, people that are installing, you know, antivirus or some kind of malware protection or some kind of uh, ransomware protection, but they've got that five-year-old firewall, they're just as, they're just as much as risk as, as not doing one of the other points. I know I kind of babbled on that one, but that no, 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 no. That was yeah. all exactly where I wanted you to go. And to, to your point that I don't, I don't want to say it was a trick question, but I wanted to give you a little something. <laughs> I've read some of the the uh, documents that you've written and you've put out there uh, as it relates to security. So I appreciate it when I'm talking to a business owner who's not giving the sales BS mantra of, oh yeah, you know we're we're the best at security. You know you deploy our solution and all your problems are solved. Right. The reality is, to your point, that the liabilities on the consumer and the customer, and they've got to make sure that they understand the situational awareness of the threats that would even be wanting to come after them so that they can lock down their environments. And even more so, to your point, the people within the organization, as a matter of policy, have to be trained on how to deal with uh, those who are going to try to disrupt and interrupt and confuse, uh, confuse them such that they give up information or access that they should not be giving up. And that's, you know, it's kind of like in the data center, the, the majority of outages occur in the data center, not because of infrastructure failure, but because of people. People, people yep. Right, right. And it's the same with security in any office or any home. It's someone who forgot to do something or said something they should not say. Uh, it's not the technology that's the failure. Yeah, I, that video that I was that I was describing, it was a couple of years ago. And there was another one that was just a reporter. And I make all of our team, whether they're in operations, whether they're in you know technical support, watch these things because you can watch somebody who just seems like a helpless person with a baby, and it's all fake. You know, it's a soundtrack in the background, and you know, it's this and it's that. And these are companies that have really good policies to prevent it. But then somebody on the phone feels sorry for somebody and, and lets one little thing slip. And then they use that piece of information and call back and they get somebody else to let some other little thing slip. And then on the third call, they've got enough information to bypass most of your security. But you're right. It's always a people problem. All right. So getting back to SD-WAN, right? The, uh, there's a gentleman that I work with by the name of Chris Donlin, who I know we've met a few times. And he's kind of our, our SD-WAN quote-unquote guru. Uh, he spends almost all of his time working with providers and working with customers 
understanding the nuances of the different solutions that are available. Um, and he's he's put together you know an SD WAN comparison matrix that we use when when we're talking to customers about this topic. And Simple WAN is on there. You're one of 45 providers. Um, Only. Yeah. Uh, and and there's 13 categories of uh, you know different types of questions and information and, and technologies that are covered here in this matrix. And there's 160 160 subcategories. It's like I read through this and I'm sure this makes sense to you and it makes sense to Chris, but a lot of this stuff does not make sense to me <laughs> at all. Um, but where where are the key differentiators between and among providers? And I'll, I'll give you, you know, something maybe to start with. Chris was talking to me about the difference between something that is quote unquote over the top and something that is is not over the top. So can you Maybe explain what over the top might mean as it relates to an SD-WAN solution. Um, and then, you know, maybe some other key points that you think uh, are differentiators between the players in the market uh, today. Absolutely. So we are considered over the top. And what over the top means is you can, it's bring your own bandwidth. You can mix and match any cable provider, any DSL provider, uh, 4G LTE, of course, 5G satellite. So like Viasat. Um, you can mix and match pretty much anything and however you want to do it, and that it, it'll provide a solution. And of course, your non-over-the-top is really carrier augmented, which means they've got a core that they've, they've completely rolled out on their, their hard back-end network that's SD-WAN smart. It's more SD-WAN, but it, or SD-N, but it, it's smart. And why that's important, and, and the best thing, from an analogy standpoint to point out is it's like LTE. Do you really know what LTE stands for? You just know whether you're in an LTE area or not on your cell phone. And it's the technology and the protocols and all those things that just make it work. And so a non-over-the-top provider has something like that built into their core. And that's what they're using to, to make it work. There's a little bit less visibility into it from the end user. And uh, it's more carrier controlled and you're over the top more normally it's an IT person that's really facilitating and knowing and, and managing the whole thing. So what are what are some of the other key, I guess, differentiators or technologies that either are or are not supported by certain SD-WAN providers? So I think I mentioned earlier on on the call that we really are focused on um that site augmentation, we kind of just fell into SD-WAN. I mean, it was a, we built it to fix a problem or a bunch of problems. And so we really took the, the more of the, you know, edge management, um, edge logging, you know, dealing with things that happen in an office um, from that standpoint. And our core and a lot of the features around what we do are SD-WAN. But what we look at it is, it's like, no, it's going to be about managing that equipment and knowing what's going on and visibility into that LAN and knowing what's going on in your Wi-Fi. And a lot of the, the carrier versions, so like the non-over-the-top, are more focused on, hey, we're dropping it off at your site and then it's your problem. And so they're both SD-WAN, but yet they, you know, they have fundamental differences as far as what they're providing to the user. And you said there was 45 on that list, I think if you're trying to feature compare, you're gonna lose. I mean, as a, as a buyer, if you're sitting there being like, oh, well, I need this and I need this, 
what happens in most of the cases when people do that is they get it installed and it's not what they were looking for. It's not what they were buying. Um, we've really approached it and I personally have approached it coming in and be like, okay, what are you trying to accomplish here? Are you trying to, you know, manage this stuff from miles away? Is there other things that are broken within the organization that, you know, this type of technology can help you reduce your labor costs, your truck roll costs, things like that? Or are you just trying to make the internet cheaper or, you know, more stable? And if somebody's like, oh, well, we just want to make it cheaper and more stable, I'm like, go with a carrier grade, go with somebody else because it's going to be less intrusive. But if you're really looking to, you know, save on those labor, add security, do those things, manage the Wi-Fi, really have no technical or, you know, um, IT type staff on site, then you need something more. You need something, you know, that's more of an edge and, you know, management type device, not just making your networks feel better. So the, the other interesting thing, and it's, it truly is mind boggling. I don't know if you've seen this matrix, but I'd love to uh, put it back in your hands um, to dig through. But it's, it's almost crazy to me that there's no, of all 45 of these providers, there's no two that have the exact same um, solution set which is probably, you know, by design from Chris's standpoint, not wanting to have more than one provider on the line card that does the exact same thing. But um, it's just fascinating to me that there's 45 companies on here and they all do things just a little bit differently. Um, whether it's their international presence uh, and ability to deliver internationally, uh, one of the ones that I'd love for you to comment on is the ability to white label um, the solution if you're an MSP. Because a lot of MSPs, right, outsourced IT service providers are the ones having a lot of these conversations with customers about connectivity, uh, their ability to take a solution and resell it into that account versus having um, you know, maybe having it be a completely separate vendor that's coming in and delivering that service. That is, I would think, a key differentiator in the marketplace. It is. And, and I don't know how many are out there that, that will not let or do or do not white label, but we're one of the few I know that do allow them to do that because it, it is their portal. And since we're not, you know, 100% really carrier focused, most people that are managing our solution are the IT provider. And if they are showing it to an executive or they're showing it to here's the stats, um, you know, their branding and their ownership, it shows that they know it well enough and, you know, they're kind of bought in and it is their solution. They're taking ownership. And we think that's really important from a, you know, from a IT perspective, because if, if they've taken it seriously to that level to take ownership, uh, they do a much more uh, better job supporting their clients. That's, do you, do you require uh, those folks to go through some sort of training? For them to, in order to have maybe that kind of status or ability to, to white label? So we do. Our resellers have to go through a, a certification process. Um, but unlike the Cisco courses that I've taken over the years, I mean, it's all real world stuff. Um, and that's what we felt was lacking in, in you know, and the struggles that SD-WAN is having is, I'll give you a great example, is so a modem for um, a big carrier they have a couple of gotcha settings in there. If you don't check those flags, they'll start filtering your traffic or they'll start blocking voice over IP or you know, uh, certain things like that. And so in our certification, we wanted it to be real world to where it's like, okay, in this environment, this is the case, this is the case, this is the case. Why isn't this working? And it'll take you through. And so when you do run into those things in the field, and you do, um, 
it's just like, oh, this is what we got to do. This is this is the thing we've got to do. Our product itself is fairly automated and easy to use. Um, any person with an application management perspective or or IT experience at all can navigate our our dashboard, and it's going to protect them from doing something stupid. And all of that's there, of course. That's where we really shine. But at the same time, is there's other people's products that it's interfacing with, and we want our you know, representatives, our resellers to be prepared to run into those things in the field. Because, you know, with our product, once somebody installs one or two, uh, they don't call us anymore. It takes them three or three or four minutes to get them all turned up and they roll in the next site. And that's the way this type of deployment and product should be. That makes a lot of sense. Are there, are there like two or three um, consistent issues that people have with their networks that are relatively simple to solve and resolve? Like when you say that there's you know, maybe two or three um, issues that eventually these folks learn how to manage on their own, I would imagine for a lot of, you know, maybe new network administrators who may be listening and or those who work with them who are constantly having issues, like what are two or three areas to look at within your network to figure out why the heck it it is that you may be having issues with your quality of service? So a lot of it is so the WAN networks have gotten really good over the last you know ten years. I mean, so most of the time, unless it's a last mile issue, your WAN is pretty solid. I mean, they they they've got tools and technology built into it now um, that really you know take that to the next level. Most of the problems are from the firewall back that we see. And it's it's silly stuff because you can't be out there all of the time. And uh, you know I've got a couple of great examples. One of them was we installed a new access point into our office um, some time ago. And I was like, just had one of my guys say, hey, just go, go do it. He made the cable, plugged it in, walked out the door, and I got a page from our, our dashboard that says, hey, you've got a bunch of LAN errors on your network. I was like, what the heck? And I went back in, I was like, hey, um, Guys, what's going on? What'd you just do? And it's like, oh, I, I made that cable. I'm like, you made it wrong. It's got uh, it's got a bad connector on it. Go ahead and remake it. And then, sure enough, 20 minutes later, that cleared, and that's what it was. Traditionally, I would have walked out the door, and in three weeks, somebody would have been like, hey, the phone quality is really bad, or hey, um, this application's really slow. I don't know why. And as an IT person, it would take me weeks to hunt down what had changed and what it was. And that's the beauty of these kind of technologies because the stuff that is causing issues is somebody in the back watching cat videos and somebody up front trying to do business and the cat videos is draining the entire network or somebody even what we call looping the network, which used to happen all the time, still does, where somebody sees two cables hanging out of the wall and they're like, oh, they must go together. And they they plug them to the wall and burn through all their IP addresses and ARP tables and all that fun stuff on their network, and then nothing works, and that's nobody knows why. And the only way to figure out what somebody physically did is go out there. And again, through these SD WAN technologies, you don't have to go out there to see that's what they did. So I've got a totally related but seemingly random question that has okay. been boggling my mind since I started working in the industry years ago. Figure you'd be the right person to ask this to. I've heard over time that there's like a difference between voice traffic going over the internet and just data traffic going over the internet. In what ways, how, how does that two type, how are those two types of traffic 
different from one another? And why is it that they're treated differently in the network? Is, is there like a layman's way to, uh, to digest that or explain that so that people can understand it? Yeah. Myself? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it goes back to where I was saying um, some protocols were designed to work not over the internet. And so if you, you've heard of TCP IP, right? So that was the, hey, this is going to be a wide protocol and everything's going to run over TCP. It's, it's a really smart system. You send a message and when the other side receives it, they send back a bit saying, hey, I got it. Send the next one. It's a, for over long distances, it's super efficient and it, it gets there. That process of sending something over there and waiting for it to come back and say, hey, I got it. It takes for, for, let's say, going to Google, it's, it feels like nothing. We're talking milliseconds. But when you're on a phone, like you can't wait for that packet to come back to send that next voice packet. It just, it just takes too long. Every other call would be like, it, 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 it. and uh, while, you, while you were talking on it, waiting for that packet to come back. And so when they developed uh, most of the voice over IP protocols out there, they're like, okay, we need a better way. And there's this thing called UDP. And UDP is exactly the opposite. It sends it, it blows it out, and if it doesn't come back, or there, there's nothing that says, hey, I got it. It's just gone. And if it doesn't get to the other side, we forget about it and move on. And UDP was never designed to work on the internet. It, it was an afterthought. It was like a, hey, okay, we should probably uh, you know, have something because there's a couple applications that we need this for. And it was layered on to the TCP IP protocol. And so at the end of the day, it's not that it's, you know, segmenting out voice services to, um, to, to you know, deprioritize or, say, you know, just setting them out or signaling them out. It's just, it was kind of like, hey, we need to get this working right away. Let's just plug this hole and move on. And we've built huge infrastructures on it. And it's just, there's nothing you can do. It's just a weak protocol system. And it's just there. So riddle me this though. So one is this, there's statements about how certain networks are better built for voice traffic than, than others. If it's using the same protocol, how could that, how could a network be better designed to support voice traffic? If it's all, is it all using UDP? I guess that's the first question is all voice traffic over the internet using UDP. 99% of the voice traffic over the internet is using UDP. Okay. And then what are networks doing to make it such that voice quality um, is better, quote unquote, better on their network than others? So it comes down to capacity. Um, TCP is great, especially the first internet networks. You remember the days. T1s were like, wow, where do I find a T1? I got to go to the university or something to get on this amazing connection. Um, when you when you were looking at dial up and things like that, I mean bandwidth was constricted, and so TCP was super important because you made sure the packet got there regardless of how long it took, and came back and told you you got it and you can go ahead and move on. So everything was fundamental on TCP, and everybody had the smallest network you know bandwidth as possible because they they couldn't. Um, Afforded, you know, probably. they couldn't afford much. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it cost a fortune. You were paying for mileage. And, and so when you've got a protocol like UDP, which fires and forgets it and it's gone, when the network's really slow or starts to break down, it's the first thing to go. TCP gets through. 
your your YouTube gets through because if it doesn't get through, in fact, it makes it so much worse because if you go to YouTube and it doesn't get through, it resends it again and again and again until it gets that response. And so you can have a crappy network and it's just going to feel slow to you because YouTube's going to keep sending that over and over and over again until it gets a response and it'll eventually get through. That plugs up the network even further when you have a slow network. So when people are talking about they have a network designed for voice, they've got adequate capacity and they have some technologies that can make sure, hey, this packet has to move along because if it doesn't, it's not going to get through. It's not going to get resent. And when a TCP packet comes through, they're like, oh, yeah, let's slow you down because you know if you don't get there, somebody else will still get there. So we're moving more and more that direction. But at the end of the day, it comes down to capacity. So more and more I'm coming across this as I've got a, a partner that works with us who focuses on UCAS and, and network solutions and almost all the time when it comes to UCAS installs, no matter what the provider, I'm seeing that they typically don't go as planned. <laughs> and there, there are some that manage that process better than others. Um, but it typically has to do with quality of the call. And, you know, we even had a new, um, a new UCAS provider installed and, and got set up and it's kind of hit or miss on call quality. And I'm just curious, how does an SD-WAN solution go about uh, helping resolve that specific problem set? Right, because it would seem that that would be a, a big piece where you could quote unquote prioritize the voice traffic um, and prevent it from from having, um, I guess, latency jitter, whatever may be going on. Like, what is happening with that SD WAN device that's allowing an organization to maybe bypass that issue or resolve that issue through prioritization of traffic? That's and that's kind of the core of what SD WAN is doing. And so again, it comes back to fundamental stuff. If you think of think of your office network, um, you know, I used to part of the company I used to have was cabling and you know things like that. And so you know, think of the evolution of the internet and your office network. I mean, at one point it was a 10 megabit um, WAN or I'm sorry LAN, and then you upgraded the cable and they got it to 100, and now we're at a million or a 1,000, so gigabit and you know, so things are flying around your office like a racetrack at a thousand miles an hour. I'm going to guess you don't have a, gig a gigabit uplink to your internet provider. I do not right now. So yeah, yeah, it's coming, right? Yes, it is coming. <laughs> um, so your your things packets are flying around your office at a thousand miles an hour, like like a racetrack. And when you had servers and your phones and all that stuff locally. It all connected to that racetrack at a thousand miles an hour. It's no problem. It's no issue. And now you've got this off ramp that is, let's say it's 50 or 100 megabytes. So we'll say it's 100, 100 miles an hour. And you've got all of these things that used to connect to your office at a thousand miles an hour. And you've moved them all to the cloud or to a data center, including your phones. And so there's almost nothing on your local network to hit at a thousand miles an hour again. Maybe a printer, but you know. Now, they're all trying to, uh, all these cars, you've got hundreds of cars on this racetrack, and they're trying to all get out that 100 mile an hour on-ramp, off-ramp. What would happen? You, you, you're going to have, yeah, you're going to have a wreck. You're going to have a huge wreck. 
And the car that's the slower car or the, you know, that's not the, the most reinforced car is going to die there. It's going to blow up and in, into, you know, a, a million pieces and, and never get out and they're going to tow it away. And that's what's happening is it's always about the weakest link. The carriers on their side, their networks are huge and they're well tuned and they have so much bandwidth on the other side. That's not the problem. The problem is that racetrack and off ramp. Yeah, that's um, that is the interesting paradigm. So, for a lot of uh, say healthcare providers that that we work with um, who are looking to move to the cloud, they're they focus on the data side of things, but they also have to look at the voice side of things and where all that data is going to live and what the latency is going to be between their office and where the data is going to live, and make sure that the pipe that they have between their offices and where the data is going to live is going to be large enough, not, you know, a, not only large enough, but to the point that you're making, that you have the right tools and rules in place to prioritize certain types of traffic so that the data that needs to come across that is high priority can come across. Um, and I think that's where, anyway, that it's the complexity in those types of solutions that for me, I love, I just love and it's why I do what I do because there's always a new interesting problem set to be had. Um, and that's me leading up to it. the next question I have for you, which is in the world that you live in today, A, as an entrepreneur, uh, B, as someone who's had a company now for five years, growing it, scaling it, what are some of the new challenges that you face uh, in this space? It comes down to noise and confusion. I mean, you referenced that page of 45, um, you know, SD-WAN providers and matrix. Um, we've been de desperately actually trying to distance us ourselves from the SD-WAN, um, you know, core name just because there is so much more to it. And, uh, you know, people that are looking for this technology, the biggest problem is, is they don't think, oh, I've got this problem. I need SD-WAN. And in reality, a lot of businesses have particular problems and they just do not know how to associate it to, to SD-WAN. SD-WAN is kind of a pie in the sky. Hey, it sounds really cool, but the confusion, the number of vendors and these vendors, they have a lot of money and they're part pumping the market base with misinformation. You've got a bunch of legacy hardware vendors out there that have been selling hardware or firewalls for 20 years. And they're, they're putting out press releases saying, hey, we now have SD-WAN. And you know, I've, I've talked to the executives and I've sent them emails. I said, you, you know this is an SD-WAN. And their response is marketing. And I'm just like, uh, oh, okay. And it, it really is doing a disservice to IT people and network engineers and even the end user because there's just so, so much information that's flying around. And a lot of it is not accurate. I would say the exact same thing about cloud computing. And for the same reasons, there's so much noise and confusion in that market. And I don't know if it's even fixable. Um, but hopefully podcasts like this, because my, my whole intention behind this podcast is to make people more knowledgeable and hopefully have more of these types of conversations that people can start to understand the concepts and think for themselves and not just go off of the clickbait and the, uh, you know, ten the 10 second ads that they hear or see um, or the brief article that they may have read in whatever magazine that was funded by the company, uh, you know, that's trying to push their own wares uh, and really has someone who wrote the article who probably knows very little about the technology to begin with. Um, but I'll get off my soapbox there. I'm sure you're experiencing and seeing the same thing. 
Oh, it, it's exactly the same thing. No, it, I don't think it's a soapbox at all. And it's so much noise and it's it's so much stuff um, calling into, you know, the marketplace. Um, I, I have to say, I mean, people call us all the time, of course, looking for SD-WAN. And when they actually go through the process of our demos and things like that, I'd say 50% of them were really looking for SD-WAN. Um, and, the, and the rest of them are, are looking to fix a particular problem. And they're just desperate to associate that with a term. And it's just not easy to do. Gotcha. So we've touched on a lot of different topics. We touched on security. We definitely touched on your, your journey. Uh, we touched on SD-WAN. Uh, one of the questions I have has to do with some of the personal stuff that you do in your economic development work in Phoenix and around that area. What, what got you interested in in being involved in the community and in the various aspects that you are today? I think it's just as an entrepreneur and I mean, the community is where, you know, our employees come from. It's, it's where, um, you know, where we live obviously. And, uh, it's just, it's so important. I think, uh, somebody told me a long time ago that, um, you know, philanthropy and things like that is just part of the entrepreneurship journey. And when you're first starting out, you obviously, it's, it's, definitely difficult but being able to do those things especially you know children's type charities and things like that um, every year as a company actually every six months as a company we shut down the office and take um, everybody out to uh, you know a local local store like a Walmart or something and just load up on toys and, and things like that for um, you know for, for the hospitals and things like that just because people aren't thinking about it when it's 115 degrees in Phoenix that hey you still need to restock those items and it's just it's just so important um, whether it's karma or whatever you know piece out there it's just important to put that positive stuff up there not just for for your business you know which is also always hard as an entrepreneur but just just to put that positive vibes out in, in, in other other areas and other energies too I, I don't know how it works, but I can tell you that you know it, it, it does work. It just it, it changes people and their mindset and and what they're focused on to be able to do stuff like that. Yeah, I love it. I love hearing about it. We we do something similar every month. We actually have a uh, a day of service, uh, a day of the week where we just get out and go do something in the community, whether it's with the Boys and Girls Club or it's with the Ronald McDonald House, whatever it might be. I think we just did a Habitat for Humanity not too long ago as well. Uh, but that type of work, you know, A, it needs to happen for the community. And there are so many people who are not served that need to be served. And by having an organization and a company like you've got and like like I've got, we, you know, from my perspective, we have a um, an obligation to serve the community that we exist within and around us. And uh, another key piece, you know, for me, and I'm sure you may be able to relate to this, but uh, when I left working for corporate America, a big reason why I left is because I got tired of having to um, hold my tongue and play politics uh, with people who I knew did not have my best interest in mind. Um, and they just didn't share the same core values and vision that I had as a, as a human. Um, and so now that I have a business and an organization, uh, it, you know, I've reached a point a couple of years back where I was waking up every day working in my, in my business and not really enjoying what I was doing. And I said, why the hell am I doing this? Why did I leave an organization to start my own thing only to not enjoy what I'm doing? And a lot of it came down to who I was doing business with. 
And it was because I did not adhere to my own vision and values and trying to surround myself with those similar types of people. Um, and so for me, a lot of the community service that, that I do and the economic development work that I do is to go out and find others who are of like mind and heart who share my vision and values so that I can try to engage with them on a professional level. Because when you're working with people that are aligned in vision and values, guess what? It's a lot more fun. <laughs> you get a lot more done a lot easier and there's yeah. a lot of bullshit that you have to deal with. Excuse my friend. Exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. And, uh, you know, that's great that you've been able to find that in, in your community and everybody's got a community like that. They just have to look, you know, deep enough. And, you know, I always say you just, you don't know, you know, because it's a silent. It's definitely not something where somebody, you know, it's an open thank you or it's an open, you know, pay, payback, but you just don't know who or what you're going to inspire and what that's going to become. And, you know, on some of the, the nonprofit boards that I sat on, you know, that was our biggest thing is like, how do we determine our, impact to the community because it's so hard to track and so the best thing i can say is you, you just got to do it you just got to keep pushing that positive stuff out there and, and doing those things because it is next to impossible to measure it but i know it works yeah, and for those business owners listening i hope if you're not doing something within your organization this inspires you to do it and if you work for an organization that doesn't have a program in place i would encourage you to look to start your own within that within that company because you have a an able-bodied workforce that can go out and do good on a regular basis um and within the same concept as i was you know doing some online stalking of you i came across the santa hotline i'd love to learn more about what the santa hotline is so it was something we did probably wow 2005 ish um, while people still use phones, um, you know, which they, they still call into it. We actually do um, something like 20,000 calls a year into that. But it was just something that we set up um, for the people. You know, we were doing, going around doing these donations around the holidays. And people, you know, they didn't have anybody to call. and They didn't have anybody to talk to. And they, they didn't, uh, they just didn't have uh, you know, some of those pieces that parents may fill in for them. And so we're like, okay. Uh, I, I know a guy that can help us kind of, you know, put this all together and we've been running it ever since. And every year, I mean, especially this time of year, um, you know, people start, kids start calling in. Uh, we used to have a system that would share out the voicemail so they could download it. But uh, some of them were heartbreaking. Uh, some of them are just like, wow, you know, incredible type of thing. And so we've just sponsored it and we've kept it up for the last uh, almost, well, 15 years. And it's just one of those cool things. It, it, you know, it was a lot of work on the front side, but over the last 15 years, so many people have gotten stuff out of it. How do people find it? I mean, I, I would love to have my kids call into the Santa hotline. I'd be very curious to hear what they say. Yeah. So I think it's at the Santa hotline.net. There's also a Facebook page for it too. But again, it's, it's real simple. You just, you call in and let them leave a message. And, you know, we used to video record my kids when they were doing it. It was great. I think that is definitely going to be happening this year. Um, you know, what some of the questions that I, I conclude on with my listeners, because we've, we've covered so much ground and I don't want to keep any longer than I have to. Um, but I'd love to know, given the, <laughs> given everything that you, you cover on a day-to-day -day basis, and I know you're a technologist, you're always out learning new things and talking to people and traveling. What, what is something that you've learned over the last month or two or in the, in the near future that's totally blown your mind? So, I mean, I think like you, uh, you know, we've obviously visited a lot of businesses and a lot of stores and, you know, we're pretty good consumers. Um, 
the lacks that people are taking from an attitude standpoint, uh, from a cybersecurity standpoint, it, it, it never, um, it, it scares the hell out of me. Um, you know, you go to a dentist and you can access their file server and, you know, it, it a lot of people are like, oh, well, that takes a super technical person. And no, it doesn't. And the things that can be done remotely and the things that, you know, that people have asked me to do from a white hack, you know, hacker type perspective, you know, with their permission, obviously, and things like that, the things that can get done and how easy it is, is truly terrifying. And that we don't have any legislation for this, you know, to enforce business owners and, and businesses of all sizes to protect their users' data. And we are a data-filled you know, society right now where, like you were doing some you know, digging, which you know, I, I try to protect you know, some of the things I have out there, but I'm pretty public. I do a lot of interviews and things like that. So obviously you can't do it all. But you know, peop the things people post on social media, the things they put on LinkedIn, the things they put on Facebook, all somebody has to do is take a couple hours and take that information and profile and make a profile, a virtual you, you know, out of that stuff. And they can become you. They can take out loans for you. They can, you know, take over things. And I, I just, you know, down to my core, am so frustrated that, you know, I understand consumers and why they may not be taking it as seriously. But businesses, businesses, you know, and these are not, not things that we offer as a, as a product as well. This is just stuff that they should be doing. They've got to take it seriously. And I'm blown away everywhere I go where I see these things. And it's just like, wow, I can't believe that that's happened. And then I think to myself, I can't believe they haven't been hacked yet. And what I do know is most people that have been hacked don't know it. And that, it just, it just scares the hell out of me. Yeah. I, I hate to say it, but I was just having a conversation with my 13-year-old who had the TikTok app, right? Which is a, yep. a very powerful app and it's blowing up and they bought Musical.ly and sort of doing some research on it and whatnot. But the kicker for me with him is um, I was like, I was watching some of the videos that he had posted and they were kind of all over the house and he's got a public profile. And I had to explain to my 13 year old who ironically, I had just taken two weeks prior with me to a InfraGuard event, which. Okay. I've done those as well. Yep. 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 Um, and the whole talk at the InfraGuard event was about uh, cybersecurity. And uh, there was the the lead attorney for the FBI for the region talking about different cases um, of Chinese nationals stealing IP uh, from businesses in and around Virginia and North Carolina and South Carolina and whatnot, and how there's a half a trillion dollars worth of IP that's being siphoned out of the U.S. Um, annually, which is just mind-boggling. And I was like, dude, what what you're doing is giving the world view into our personal home. And do you, do you understand what that is and what that means? So anyone who would want to or might even be thinking about wanting to get visibility into what's going on in our personal lives or inside our house or how to get into our house, you're giving them free reign and free access to that information. And that's not information that we want shared. And they was kind of explaining this to a 13-year-old who really... That was the farthest thing from you know his mind when he was creating and posting these videos, and it's he's probably thinking, "Who would want to do that to me?" Right, exactly. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so, 
Thanks. Thanks for that total downer. I appreciate that. <laughs> we'll leave it on a down note then. Yeah, no, but it, it does. It, it, it scares me. And, uh, you know, on the TikTok thing, like you're saying, uh, I mean, it even encodes your GPS coordinates in the videos and things like that in the back end. And yeah. most people are just not thinking about that kind of stuff. Yeah. And once you ring that bell, you can't unring that bell. Mm-hmm. It's out there. Yep. Uh, um, well, let me get back to some other, other questions. What, um, you, you had mentioned briefly the first time that you had been through a data center, but what, what do you remember from that first visit that you had into a data center? And I'm not talking about like a server closet room, right? Where they, someone may have had a couple servers inside their office. I'm talking like a full blown commercial data center. Yeah. So we, so when starting the voice over IP company back then, there was no such thing as cloud services. So we had to go to a physical, you know, physical facility that was massive. It was a, it was an old printing press in the middle of downtown Phoenix. And at the time period, it was the ghetto. Like, I mean, we were there, of course, you can't do stuff during the day. So we were there, you know, 11 o'clock at night till five in the morning. And, you know, it, it was, it was a scary place. Um, but the one thing that, that reminds, you know, sticks in my mind the most from those days, and there was plenty of days where we were just camped out there doing, you know, maintenance, running wires, running fiber, running cables, being in the basement, was A, cell phone service did not work at all. Um, I don't know if it's gotten any better, but just how bad that system dried out your skin, and it felt like it dried out your entire body by the end of the night. Do you remember what data center that was? Uh, so it was a, it, it, they got bought up, but it was, uh, um, let's see who, it was 120 Van Buren is where it was at. And so it was one of the first big, you know, commercial turn type data centers at the time period. It was, it was kind of a, a big deal. It was actually, I think it was the biggest at the time. Yeah, still, that still is the major internet exchange and internet um, uh, hub for, Phoenix, and I believe DRT owns that building. Did that, okay, within, that makes sense. Yeah, and then within, uh, you know, DRT has a handful of other uh, co-location providers within that facility delivering services. Um, it yeah. was so early to that, like the, the founders who still ended up selling that, and I think they uh, yeah. then started IO data centers. Uh, I mean, they were the guys. With at the routers with us, we would tell them they had problems, and you know the uh, the brothers that were running the place would would come over and uh, uh, you know kind of help us out, and it was just three people that and and somebody else, and it was Sterling is what it was called back then, Sterling Network Data Center, and uh, you know yeah it was it was an interesting place, and it, it, a fraction of it was built out because it cost so much to build out. And uh, what really, you know, during the time period that we were there, what really fascinated me is, I guess, and maybe you can probably fill in my knowledge gaps here, is that a 10-year-old data center is just ancient. And it's probably been 10 years since I've been in one, or maybe five. Um, But they moved us every five years between rooms because just the technology had changed so much from cooling. Like I said, that first one, we had old PCs and stuff like that. Some of them were facing one way, another way. We had old CRTs in the cabinets. And by the time that we moved out of that last one, when I sold that business, like everything was aligned, hot and cold aisles. I mean, everything had to be cabled properly. The rules were just insane compared to, you know, we were first throwing stuff in there. 
Yeah, that's definitely been the evolution of the uh, of the industry. I first got started working out of the equivalent of 120 uh, East Van Buren up in San Francisco, which was 200 Paul Avenue, which is also a digital realty trust facility. And uh, the firm I was with, United Layer, ended up taking over one of the entire floors and managing that floor. And we had to effectively force every single one of those customers uh, to reconfigure, redesign uh, their layout because when they originally deployed on the floor, it was almost like a Tetris match and a, a Tetris game <laughs> of how these cages were assembled and designed, which made no sense what whatsoever to your point with hot air blowing into the cold aisles and cold, cold aisles having hot air blowing in. And there's, you know, devices facing every which way and there was no standards whatsoever it was you know oh, at that time period you could bring your own cage you could bring your own uh, cabinet yeah exactly and so you'd be walking down the aisle and if you didn't lift your head up you'd walk into somebody's corner of their cabinet because it was an extra long one well eric next time i am in atlanta or in uh, phoenix i will take you on a data center tour and i'll show you all i would the love new it. fascinating fun things that are going on in the industry these days I would love it as long. I have to bring something to keep from drying out, but I'll I'll be good. <laughs> we'll be in and out in like fifteen twenty minutes. I, I, oh, then we'll be good. Yeah, as long as I'm not camping there, and I, I have done that. You've camped inside the data center, huh? Oh yeah, oh yeah. There was an outage um, when we first <laughs> getting things off the ground when we launched like two thousand four. I guess at the time it was Quest. They had some huge fiber outage, and uh, you know all, all, we were eight eight months into this. We thought we were going out of business because of their outage, and I literally. We camped there until they got all the fiber repaired, and apparently it was bigger than we thought. Oh, yeah. I think some of the providers these days have gotten smarter, and they have rooms where they have bed beds or cots that can be brought out for people who are in those positions and showers and whatnot. But uh, oh, that's I, amazing. I can, we we laid in the aisles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've I've seen my fair share of people sleep at desks sitting inside their cages in the data center with headphones on because they uh, wanted to try to block out the noise of the data center. Well, Eric, this was a, a fun and enlightening conversation. Um, I greatly, greatly appreciate you taking the time. I'm sure our listeners uh, do as well. And um, I got one last question for you that I ask all my, all my guests, which is, do you love data centers? Uh, I do. I do love data centers. There we go. Well, thank you, Eric. I'm sure we will be talking uh, soon and seeing each other at a, a conference at some point in the very near future. Perfect. No, I appreciate you having me and it's been a lot of fun. Thank you, man. Peace. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.